And now I pray, God, for the ministry of your word that you would speak through me as we open your word to discuss uh, uh, this important uh, text that you have before us this morning. Give us ears to hear. Speak through me, Lord. Give me your word. And bless us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Again, if you are visiting with us, it is we are glad to have you. It is our common practice here that we usually preach through books of the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, and we just started last week uh, to begin to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we will be in this book for some time, and so um, we are eager to see what God has for us in this rich book. Just to kind of, or the, the first and foremost, the title of the sermon this morning is Called to be Saints for You Worshippers in Training. And the key words are called, sanctified, and saints. Just to kind of review last week, if you remember last week, we kind of took an overview of the entire book, uh, some background information about this this body of believers in this city of Corinth. Corinth was located in the region of Achaia. Uh, It's in the modern um, uh, country of Greece, the southern tip. It was kind of in on that little isthmus land bridge that connected the Peloponnesian Peninsula uh, to the mainland of Greece. And as we talked about last week, that Corinth was strategically located between two ports of coal on two major bodies of water. And so it was a very uh, prosperous city. Much uh, uh, commerce and business was taking place as many people from the, from the known world at that time were coming through there. Sailors and, and different types of people were converging on this city. And as we talked about last week, this was a a city that was uh, known for great immorality. There was uh, actually a, a temple of Aphrodite there that, that employed some 1,000 temple prostitutes uh, to, uh, to service the, the, the city in that manner. And so um, we, we've seen that this city was, was, was known for its immorality and known in the world as a place uh, that, would, that is a difficult place to, to have any type of religion practice. But nonetheless... The Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, uh, went there and established this church in Corinth and then left uh, after 18 months of service, after God giving him this vision that he would have many people in this city, uh, that God had already begun to prepare the hearts of of the people in this city to begin the work of this new church. And so Paul labored there for some 18 months, and then after leaving and uh, going back to Antioch, he began his what, he, what is known as his third missionary journey in which he finally or ultimately led, uh, ended up in the city of Ephesus there and he spent some two or three years there and it's from this city that he wrote this letter to the church at Corinth which was, which was only some 50 miles away or, or, or from there. And so he began to get this report from this lady Chloe who was a member of this church from very, uh, very diverse things that were happening. Great division was cropping into this church. People were beginning to draw lines between their favorite leaders. Some people were for Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and so there was great division creeping into this church. And so Paul immediately began to, uh, uh, or one of the reasons he writes this letter was to address some of these divisions. And then also we see at the very, uh, from the very, uh, most of the end of the book, from chapter 7 on to the end, 
He's dealing with questions that this congregation has put forth to him, things that they were confused about, and we talked about those last week. And so today we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go through the first three verses this morning. I want to read these verses, and then I'll give you the outline, and I will be following. Follow along, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here that this is really, if any of you are familiar with any of Paul's letters, this is a common way that Paul opens up his letters. This is actually a, a typical Greek letter, the way a letter in that time was written. Uh, you know, when we write a letter today, we typically could put our name at the end of it. But um, in, in those days, in this time, in this culture of Greece, they would actually put their name at the very beginning of it. They would, it would actually be a three-part greeting that they would usually follow. The, the author would identify himself. He would identify the readers or the people, the recipients to whom he would be writing. And then he would follow that with a greeting of some sort. And so Paul is doing that here as well. And so we're going to begin to look into that this morning in the first three verses. Actually, the greeting carries forward into all the way to verse 9, but we're going to cover verses 4 through 9 next week. But we're going to begin to look at this this morning and what Paul is telling this church as he begins to write to them. And so the, the outline that I'll be following really breaks down according to verse divisions. Verse 1, uh, we'll be looking at the divine calling of the author himself. Verse 2, we'll be looking at the divine calling of the recipients. And then verse 3, we will be looking at the calling for divine provision. And so let's look at verse 1 again. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And so we see here Paul immediately begins to establish here his authoritative position before the church by making a, a threefold claim for himself. First, he's asserting that he was an apostle. Paul, he says, he's an apostle. And so what does this word mean? The word apostolos in Greek simply means a sent one. It means a messenger. Uh, in a basic meaning, that's exactly what it means, somebody who's sent forth with a message uh, to proclaim. And so, But also, in the Bible, whenever we see the word apostolos, this Greek word followed by uh, of Christ Jesus or apostle of Jesus Christ, then we know that this is describing a very select group of people. If you're just using the word in a, in a general sense, apostolos, it could mean just about anybody who might be sent forth to proclaim a message. But in this sense, whenever the Holy Spirit is writing, inspiring the writer to, to call himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, then we know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about initially those select group, those 12 men that Jesus commissioned uh, very early on in his ministry. And so... We know that Paul here is saying that he is one of these, one of this group. Um, he is uh, one of the one of the uh, apostles of Jesus Christ. We know that he was not one of the original twelve. Um, Paul or, or Jesus called those twelve, Judas being one of them. And then when Judas betrayed him uh, in the very first uh, chapter of Acts, we begin to see that the apostles themselves got together and cast lots, and God shown His will through that by um, replacing Judas with Matthias. And so they're back to the original 12. But then we also know that Paul was called also. We see this happening in Acts 
chapter 9, and even Paul described himself as one who was called out of time, out of turn. He was not one of the original 12. But he nonetheless was an apostle because Jesus Christ came to him on the road to Damascus as Paul, who was Saul then, Saul of Tarsus, who was on his way to Damascus, actually with uh, orders from, from, the Jew, from, from, the, from the Jewish synagogue to begin to, to look at these people who were, who were causing confusion uh, amongst the Jews, these Christians that Paul was going to persecute. And so he was on the road to Damascus to, in order to do that, and Jesus showed up. He knocked him off his horse and blinded him. And then Paul from that forth, Saul from that fourth point on was changed forever. And we see that happening in Acts chapter 9. But Paul himself, he, he, nonetheless, he never, even though he called himself as being an apostle out of turn, he was not one of the twelve. He still, based on the fact that Jesus Christ called him uh, on that day, considered himself and walked in that office from that day forward. And Paul, even in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we see him talking about his, his office. He says, uh, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, you not, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If no others, I am not. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so Paul is beginning to defend the fact that he is an apostle. He's saying that I have seen the risen Lord. And so we know from our study of the New Testament specifically that it, in order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, that was one of the things that had to be true of you. You had to have seen the risen Lord. And so, of course, the original 12 had done that. They walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, Paul did not do that, but nonetheless, he did see the risen Lord that day on the road to Damascus, and so that was true of him. And we also see in 2 Corinthians another, um, another verifying, verifying mark of what an apostle was when Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 12, "...the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." And so that was another verifying sign that a person was an apostle of Jesus Christ if he was beginning to do works, uh, miraculous works um, uh, to the people he was uh, ministering to. And so Paul was one of these apostles, and he was recognized by the other apostles. Uh, maybe not at first. They were a little leery at first. But as he went back to Jerusalem and, and began to interact with them, they recognized that God had indeed called, them, called him and set him apart as what he considered himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he began immediately to work in that office. And so Paul here is asserting to them that he is one of these apostles. He's, he's laying that out from the very beginning because, because keep in mind what's about to come, what's about to happen. He's about to, he's about to have to correct some very mis, misinformed, misconfused uh, people. Some of the people were in active sin, and so he was having to, going to have to come and correct that and, 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 and bring uh, authority to that issue. And so he immediately had to begin to establish himself as one of the original apostles, the founders of the church, the foundation of the church uh, that the apostles were. Notice the second thing that he asserts about himself here is that he was a called apostle. It says uh, that he was, um, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. What is this issue called? Well, really, in the, in the um, original language, the word to be is not even in there. So really what he's saying there, he was a called apostle. It's an adjective the adjective that describes what type of apostle is he. Did he come up with this position on his own? Did he just one day decide, well, I like this gig. This looks like it would be pretty fun, uh, so I'll just join in with these guys and make myself an apostle. No, he's saying that he was called 
by God himself, that effectual call. And we see that happening very graphically in Acts 9 uh, on the road to Damascus. That was a call from God who, who he has set apart. Paul was directly called and commissioned by Christ to this office of apostle. Uh, and in fact, as, uh, as I said earlier, Paul did not consider himself worthy of the position um, as he reflects on his life. And we see that in chapter 15 in this book, in verses 8 through 11, he says, Last of all, talking about all the apostles, then he talks about himself. Last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so you see here, Paul is looking back on his life and he's saying, I don't, I'm not worthy to be considered one of these original 12 because I was actively persecuting the church. Nonetheless, I am what I am. God has called me to be this apostle. And so I have to, even though I can look at that and bemoan the fact that I, that was true of me at one time, I cannot just live in that doldrum. I have to put that aside and say, nonetheless, in God's wisdom, he has called me to be an apostle, even though I don't feel like I'm worthy to this, and, and I would not call myself to this position, but God in his wisdom has, and he has given me the grace to do this, and so I consider myself a called apostle based on Christ's calling to this position. And then finally he says here that his apostleship came through the will of God. It was God the Father who decreed Paul's salvation as well as his apostleship. And it was Christ who secured that purpose when he confronted Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. And so we see, we know all of things happening according to the will of God. And even this, even this issue of Paul becoming an apostle, one of the founders of the church, was through the will of God. And as we've seen in other places in Scripture, Paul specifically was called, uh, according to the will of God, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that is why he's in these places like Corinth. He's going out from Jerusalem. Uh, the church is beginning to spread throughout the Mediterranean world. And so Paul, uh, from that commission of being the apostle to the Gentiles, has begun to go out to these, uh, these Gentile cities, Corinth being one of them. And so Paul, from the very beginning, is recognizing that he is not here on his own authority because he's going to be dealing with some people that, are, that don't trust him because, remember, there's a schism there. There's division. Some people are claiming they're in Peter's camp or some of them are claiming they're in Apollos' camp. And some people are saying they're not with me. And so there's even active false teachers involved in this church who is trying to undermine the things he's already done. And so he's here to straighten that out. So he has to come with credentials. He can't just come and say, well, I'm Paul. So listen to me. No, he comes to them establishing his purpose for even speaking to them. And so based on that, um, based on his, his apostolic authority, he has the right to say what he's about to say to this church. And he has some very hard things to say to this church. And so he immediately establishes himself to say, look, I'm here to speak on behalf of God himself. I am his emissary. I am his apostle. I am the apostle of Christ, and I'm here to deal with this church of Christ as his emissary. And so Paul, from the very beginning, establishes his divine calling as being the author of this letter. And then verse 2, we see, really getting into the, to the meat of what I want to look at today, he begins to establish the divine calling of the recipients to whom he will be 
speaking to. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so this is part of that greeting. He's beginning to establish who it is he's writing to. And he doesn't just stop by saying, to the church of God in Corinth. He could have stopped there. You know, he could, he's identifying who he's writing to, but he doesn't. He goes further to describe who they are, and that's very, very important for us to establish going into this letter, that he establishes who these people are in Christ, and he establishes that. He identifies these people in four ways. First, he identifies them as the church of God at Corinth. They're the local body of believers who he planted in this city uh, several years ago. And so uh, in, in th- this letter is applicable for all of us. This letter is here for, uh, to, for all churches to learn from and to draw from. It is the word of God, but he was specifically the reason he wrote this letter at the very beginning here was to write to this specific assembly, these specific local believers in this city of Corinth, this church itself. And so he establishes that from the very beginning. You are the church of God in Corinth. You are not the church at Corinth. You know, a lot of times we, we think we're, we're a church here, we're a church there. They're the church of God at Corinth. It's God's church. Uh, they were established by God, and so they are lo- and they're located at this city of Corinth. So he identifies them that way. And then the next thing, look at what he says. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, to be sanctified in Christ Jesus? The Greek word there is uh, hagiazo. It simply means to be set apart. If I was to take something, if I was to take one of these baby bottles and take it out of this container here and set it over here, I have set it apart from the rest. I have moved it over here to another purpose. And so really in general sense, that's what it means to be set apart, but it means more than that. It also means to be set apart in order to be purified, to purify, to cleanse externally to purify by expiation, to free yourself, free them, to be freed from guilt of sin. But it also means to purify internally by renewing of the soul. And so that's what we're talking about when we say sanctified. We're being set apart to a, from, a, from one use to a holy use. And so as we're talking about people themselves, we know what that means. We're set apart from an unholy use, which we are in ourselves, in our fallen nature. We are unholy. We are unrighteous. There is nothing good in us. And so when we're sanctified, we're being set apart from that. God is taking us from that and setting us over here, taking us out of the kingdom of darkness, setting us into the kingdom of light. That is that process of sanctification. And so we've heard that a lot. We talk about that a lot in the church as this issue, the doctrine of sanctification. But we have to look at it as two different parts here, uh, or you might get confused. There's two different ways to look at this issue of sanctification, and we're going to see one of them here. The first is what we call definitive sanctification. Another way to put it is positional sanctification. It's a one-time act by God to set apart a person from the profane to the holy. It's a one-time act being done by God himself to set somebody apart from profane, from a profane use to a holy use. That's, the, that's definitive sanctification. And then the other way we look at it, the other side of the coin, I guess you could look at it, is called progressive sanctification. That's probably what we tend to think about when we hear the word sanctification. That's this process over time where that involves change in us in which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that change. In other words, that's spiritual growth. When we talk about sanctification, we usually think about that's my spiritual growth. That's my growing in the, in, in the Lord, my maturing over time. 
uh, start out at, at the moment of salvation as a, as a babe in Christ. I don't know a lot. Uh, I'm, you know, God's beginning to deal with my sin. I'm a, uh, I might be doing some things that I probably shouldn't be doing. But over time, as God is dealing with me and I'm involved with other believers and they're holding me accountable and they're instructing me, then I am, and I, hopefully I am turning from those sins one by one. And I'm beginning to see steady growth in my life over time. That's what we would call progressive sanctification. But which one do you think he's talking about here? Because he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Well, to give us an idea of, what, of what it, which one he's actually talking about, the word sanctified there is actually in the perfect tense. It's in the perfect passive tense. And what that means is that something has happened in the past that was a completed action, the results of which have carried forth into the present. And so whenever, God, whenever uh, Paul is saying to these people that, those, that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, he's saying that you have been set apart. You have been made holy by God in one, at one point in the past, and that has carried forth into the future. Uh, and so definitive sanctification, if we think of it like that, is different than justification because what is justification? We all know that to be a legal term, right? Justification is whenever, whenever uh, I'm saved and I put my faith in Christ, God declares me not guilty um, of the penalty of sin. He declares that, that I am no longer guilty in the courts of heaven, that I stand before him as not condemned. And so it's sort of like that, but in, in the sense that definitive sanctification addressed the pollution of our sin whereas justification direct addresses our legal standing before God. But nonetheless, this is a one-time act. God has set us apart. He has taken us from the profane and brought us into the holy. And He has set us apart. And it is a one-time act. And the key, I think, that we want to see here today is this can never be detracted from and this can never be improved. Because how were we set apart? What does He say? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're not set apart because there was something all of a sudden good in us that he recognized that he can say, okay, now you've made it to the plateau, now you're holy. No, that is not true of any of us. And so what he's saying here is that he, we have been set apart, we have been sanctified and made holy because we're in Christ Jesus. It's that one-time act of God. And so that's what Paul is telling these people today. He's reminding them <coughs> that they have been set apart uh, and so we kind of see this clearly uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 10, the writer says, And by that will, he's speaking about Christ, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see what he's saying? By God's will we have been sanctified. We have been, past tense, sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. So you see that one-time act through the, through the sacrifice of Christ and by God placing this, the sin of all of His elect for all time on the, body, on, the, on the person of Christ on the cross, we see that transaction taking place on the cross. And so He's saying by that act, we, those of us who are in Christ, have been set apart. We have been made holy in Christ because we are holy? No, but because He is holy and we have been placed in Him. But then verse 14 says... In Hebrews 10, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so you see, the definitive sanctification is really the beginning of the process. 
He sets you apart as holy unto himself. You cannot add to that, but you now have begun the process over time where you will be made what you truly are. You will begin to see in, in actuality what is true of you already in the courts of heaven. And so God is beginning to make you uh, into, more, uh, into more holy because you are already in his eyes holy because you are in Christ. And so we see here, I think, when we're, when we're talking about sanctification, that we can look at it in three stages. The first we see is the time of regeneration, the moment that you are actually saved, the moment that Christ, changed, the Holy Spirit, changes your heart, that moment of conversion, that's what we would call definitive or positional sanctification because God is taking you out, uh, set you apart from the world unto himself. And in that sense, you can say that you have been set free from the penalty of sin. You have been set free from the penalty of sin. That's what uh, definitive sanctification says, says about you, that you are no longer guilty of sin because you have been set free because you are in Christ. That Romans 8.1 is true for us then, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're good? No, because we are in Christ Jesus. Because of His sinless life that we are now in a part of Him we have that foreign righteousness that we so much need. We have it accredited to us by God um, upon our account so that when he sees us, he sees a righteous person. We sees his son. And then the next step we talked about is progressive sanctification, the present cleansing and growth being done by the Spirit through the Word. We see that in John chapter 17, verse 17, when Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In, order he's, in other words, he's saying, do this for them. Sanctify them. Begin this process of growing them and setting them more and more and more and more apart for yourself. And so that should be true of us. And so we can say that we are currently being set free from the power of sin. That should be what is true of our lives today. As we grow in grace, as we grow and walk with Christ more and more, we, the power of grace that he gives us should be setting us free from the power of that sin. That sin, even though we are no longer guilty of it, even though it has been paid for, nonetheless, the remnants of it still is in us, and we have to battle that. And so he is saying that, we are, that he is setting us free from the power of that. That is the progressive side of it. But then we see the end result, the total separation from the effects of sin when we receive the incorruptible, immortal body at Jesus' return. And then we will be able to say that we have been set free from the very presence of sin. And that will be a glorious day, will it not? Whenever all the struggles that we've gone through will finally be realized in the sense that we no longer have any indwelling sin anymore. The victory has been won completely. And we are given that sinless body, that immortal body that, uh, that is like our brother Jesus and so we will, we will be as He is um, without sin in heaven. And so that will be, in a sense, when we reach our ultimate destination of sanctification. But what Paul is telling these people here and what is so important for us to grasp this morning is to know that the result is already guaranteed. You're already set apart. You can't get off that road. If you are set apart in Christ Jesus, if you are one of His then you are holy in His eyes. You are set apart. And so I know that's hard for us to grasp sometimes because we look at our lives and as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, and he's crying out, why am I doing these things? 
Why, why am I not doing the things I knew I should be doing and the things I'm doing I know I'm not supposed to be doing? Why is this happening? If I am one of yours, why is this happening? Is that not the testimony of you? It's the testimony of me. I cry that out sometimes when I see the power of sin in my life and I see the struggle. I'm being beat down and I want to give up and I'm saying, am I truly one of yours? How can this be true of me if I am one of yours? And so what he's saying and what Paul says, praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He, goes, he runs right back to his positional sanctification, knowing that he is firmly in the hands of God, even though he's struggling in this life. His sin is overtaking him. And that's true of us, even though we're being beat down in the battle against sin. We can run back to that and rest in that, knowing that there is no condemnation for us. That we have been set apart. We have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The next thing he says about these people, he says that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Just as Paul was an apostle by divine calling, they were saints by that same divine calling. Now, no doubt there is much confusion over this word, over this idea of sainthood in, in our world. In most religions outside of Protestantism, sainthood is something that can only be attained for those who have already died and are now in heaven, but even then, it can only be attained for those whose life on earth was characterized by great works for God, great things being done uh, in God's service. The Roman Catholic Church is especially prominent in the veneration of these saints and even go as far as offering prayers and worship to these so-called saints, but we know this to be idolatry. These people are not saints in the sense that they have attained some some superposition with God because of their service. That is contrary to what Paul is teaching here. Here He's saying, you are saints because you have been set apart by God Himself. You are called saints. The word Again, the word to be is not in the original. He's saying you are called saints. That's what type of saint you are. You're not a saint because of the great works you're doing, because you're able to overcome this sin. You're saints because God called you. He set you apart. It's the... It's the Greek word hagios. It's, it's close to the word hagiazo that we looked at a while ago that's, that, uh, that is translated sanctification. It simply means to be set up. It's a set-apart one. It's a person who has been set apart. And so what he is saying there is that he is saying that you are a saint. You don't have to wait to get to heaven. You are a saint. But also keep in mind, who is he writing here to? Who is this church? This is the church at Corinth. This was a church that was pretty messed up. They were struggling. They were doing things wrong. There was, there was much licentiousness going on, sexual immorality, things they were struggling with. There was great divisions in there, great schisms going back and forth. People were upset and things were going wrong. And so if you were to look at this church from the outside, you would say, they are no way. They are saints. I would never call them saints. They are not saintly. They are not growing in grace. But Paul here, from the very outset, before he begins to even go into talking about these problems that this church has, he establishes them as saints. He calls them saints. And so I hope that encourages you because I know that's what he was trying to do here. He's trying to tell them before he begins to correct them what they were doing wrong. He tells them who they are. And that's important for us to know whenever we're living the Christian life and we're being corrected Whenever we're receiving the correction of God's Word and whenever we're being beat down and we're frustrated and we're discouraged and we're ready to give up, we have to realize 
Yeah, that's true, but what is your position? Who are you? You are a saint. You are a set-apart person unto God. He has, and it wasn't, you weren't set apart because of your good, your, your, your good wisdom and, and you made good decisions. You're set apart because God set you apart. And you were in that state. And you cannot be taken from that state. And so he is reminding, reminding these confused people in this church of who they are. Because really that's going to be where the power is going to come for come from for change ultimately. They're not going to be able to change because they're because they're they're going to want to, or because somebody like Paul is going to convince them to. They're going to change because they are one of God's, and we're going to look at that in a minute. How they what what they will be drawing on to change, and then the final thing he says about these recipients is that they were unified with the universal church as God's people. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul is encouraging them by telling them that they share the same position as believers in every place. You know, when, we, when we're, we're involved in the struggles of our own local congregation, we think this is it. Things can't get any worse or any better than this. This is it. No, God's kingdom goes out throughout the whole earth. He has churches all over the place. And so Paul here is reminding this church, no, you are a part of a greater community. You are a part of a local church, but that local church is part of a worldwide kingdom of God's churches. And so what is the question is, how does one become a saint? And we see that here by calling upon the name of Christ. The Corinthians had done this, and so had believers in other areas. And in fact, we see in here that this is really the simplest definition of the procedure to secure personal salvation, as we see in Acts 2.21, when Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Romans 10, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Most importantly, Paul tells these believers in Corinth that they have the same Lord as other believers. In fact, these opening nine verses that were in this chapter, uh, Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ eight times. He's grounding them in the fact of who they are. They are sanctified. They are set apart. They are saints uh, by their calling. But they also are identified with the worldwide church the worldwide church who have called on the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of those who call upon Christ are saved. And so here he's telling them that your troubles are great, your problems are big, and I'm here to help you, but realize that you are a part of a greater community, and that greater community is part of one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is, he is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of the church at Corinth. He is the Lord of the church here. He is the Lord of the church throughout this community. He is the Lord of the church in this country. He's the Lord of the church throughout this world. And so he is the divine head. And so he is, Paul is here framing them into a, a place of understanding to say, look, I know our problems are big and we, need, we, we have to do a lot of hard work to straighten this out. But do you know where the power is going to come from? It's going to come from the Lord of the church. He is the one who is here to help straighten us out and build this into a greater church. And so we see here that Paul establishes very clearly to them their divine calling, these recipients. 
They have been set apart. They are holy. Even though they are not acting that way, they are. And so I hope that encourages you this morning to know whatever you're struggling with in this, in this life, in your lives, in your family, in your marriages, in your work situations, or whatever it may be, you know that this is part of the God's purpose in grow, making you into what you really are. You are holy. In His mind, in His eyes, you are holy because His Son is holy. And that is who He sees when He sees us. He sees His Son because it is His righteousness that covers us. And so He is here to encourage this church to let them know, even though they've got off track, even though they need to be corrected, they are nonetheless His children and they are holy. And then Paul, in verse 3, shows them where does this divine where does the divine provision come from how are you going to to begin the hard work to make this change to be to become what you are he says grace to you and peace verse 3 grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord jesus christ we see here two essential provisions this is the content of the blessing was twofold it was grace and peace these two words reflect uh, the, the Greek concept of charis, which is translated grace, but it also reflects the Hebrew concept of peace, which uh, can also be in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament is, is called shalom. We hear that um, being, being said by Jews a lot. That's their common greeting is to say shalom. That means peace. And so what does this Greek word charis mean? It means goodwill, loving kindness, favor. We've all, I think we, we know the term or the definition of grace to be unmerited favor. It, can be, it cannot be uh, based on any merit or anything that I have earned. It is unmerited. It is un- of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in the Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindness and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. All of that is a definition of grace. The doctrine of grace reveals that God bestows blessings upon believers apart from any merit that they might have, that they may have earned. In other words, it is completely unearned and undeserved. The Greek word charis, or grace, stands in direct antithesis to the Greek word ergon, which means to work. And we see that very clearly laid out in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's by grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And so you see Paul making that clear distinction. Grace cannot be based on works, or else we could stand before him one day and say, I got myself here. I am here because of my good deeds, or my good sense, or my right decision or my service to you. No, he's saying, no, you are here because of my grace, of my unmerited favor upon you, because there is nothing favorable in you. There is nothing of him to there is nothing for God to see in me that would that would cause him to want to give me that grace. Nothing but a fallen sinner who is a rebel against his holy law. And so by grace he has bestowed that his mercy upon me, completely separate from what I have done. You couple that with peace, which peace is really the fruit of grace. Peace is the Greek word arene. It means a state of national tranquility. 
It could mean peace between individuals, harmony, concord. concord. It could mean security, safety, prosperity. Uh, it, uh, it also, it can be called, talked about in the sense of the Messiah's peace, Christ's peace, where he comes, remember he said in the upper room, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you, but I give you. Leon Morris, when talking about this word peace, says, it is not simply the absence of strife, but the presence of positive blessing. It is the prosperity of the whole man, especially his spiritual prosperity. So it's not just the fact that there's no problems. You know, we think, well, man, I, I would just like to have a peaceful day. What do we mean by that? The absence of conflict is usually what we mean. We don't want anybody complaining to us or griping to us or wanting coming to us to solve problems or wanting anything from us. That's what we mean when we say, I want to have a peaceful day. Well, that's the, the, the definition of spiritual peace is beyond that. It's really not just the absence of strife. It's, it is, like he says, the presence of positive blessings. And that's the type of peace that Christ is saying when he says, my peace I give to you. It's not that I'm going to bring the absence of strife because that's not true, is it? <laughs> there is strife every day. And so if that's what it meant, I think something's wrong. But that's not what he meant. When he says, my peace I give to you, he's saying in the midst of that strife, I'm going to provide you with blessings to see you through it, to help you to grow through it. And ultimately, that's the reason for strife. He said to his apostles, disciples then in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation in the world. He told them, and, he, and, and, we're, and we experience that every day. But he says, take heart, because the trouble that you're experiencing is not because the world is winning the battle. I have overcome the world. I have already defeated the world. And so you're just, you're just experiencing the wrath of a defeated enemy. But it cannot overcome you because I have overcome it. And so you will have tribulation, he says, but take heart. I can still provide you with peace, but if you take my peace. And that's the key. It's Christ's peace. This is uh, Paul no doubt had in his mind when he was giving this greeting, uh, the, the traditional Hebrew benediction that we see in number 6, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And so that they would say that to themselves constantly. And so what is he saying in that? That the Lord would be gracious to you and that from that grace you would experience the positive blessings of peace. And why, how, could you, how could you experience that? Because you have two reliable providers. When he, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the fountainhead is. That's where we draw it from. We don't draw it from our own wisdom from our own strength, our own abilities, we draw it from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by saying those two, he is, he is saying that we are included in the family of God by saying God the Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in, talks about our allegiance to the Lord of the church. And so we are in God's family, but we are also a part of Christ's church. And so from that is where the peace and grace flow through that. 
And so, in conclusion, I'm running out of time. I need to hurry. My question for you today is, do you consider yourselves to be a saint? Do you consider yourself to be a saint? Because if you have called upon the name of the Lord, and that's key, if you have called upon God in repentance, placing your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and turning from your sin, realizing you have nothing to bring with you to the courts of heaven to allow you entrance, if you understand that you are helpless and fallen and you, are, you deserve an eternal hell of, of God's wrath being poured out upon you, and if you have called upon Christ in repentance, asking for God, in, in faith, asking for God to forgive you of your sins, then you are, by definition, a saint. You are set apart. And so I hope today that that encourages you because that is exactly what Paul was doing here with this church. He's encouraging them right out of the gate because he has to do some very hard work with them. And so for us as a church, we have a lot of hard work to do too. But, but coming out of the gate, as we encourage one another to do that hard work, we, all, we both, all of us, come hand in hand realizing that we are saints. We are saints in the household of God. We are His children. And so we can, we can see how great, how great encouragement that would bring. And in conclusion, I want you to turn to 2 Peter 1.3. Because God is the provider of grace and peace. But He's not just going to dump it in us as, as, and, and us have nothing to do with it. We see that uh, balance here in Peter's admonition at the beginning of his letter. He says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's God's part. That's what He's done for us. But then what does He say in verse 5? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, what is he saying there? The first four verses he says, let me tell you what God has done for you. Let me tell you the many great promises that he has provided for you. The things he says he will do for you. Let me establish that for you from the outset. But then he says, for this very reason, because you know that, because you understand what God has done for you, Make every effort to walk in that, to be who you are. And so the admonition I want to get put forth to you today as you leave here is that you go out from this place and you be who you are. You are a set-apart one. You are holy unto God, a holy instrument for His holy purposes. And now you have to go and examine yourself to see, am I living that way? What ways am I not? How can I improve on these areas? And Paul, I mean, Peter here tells us some ways we can do. Uh, adding virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, um, brotherly affection and love. These are things that we do in order to grow in grace, to live out who we are. And so our, my admonition to you this morning 
as we begin to work and do the hard work of a local church here at Ephesus in Rincon, that we understand that we are saints by calling, that God has set us apart for a holy purpose. And the reason that you exist today is for that purpose. You are not here to live the American dream. You are not here to own a big house and go on vacations, even though those things can be fine in their right context. You are here for a holy purpose. You are set apart by God. He did not send His Son to the cross to die for you in order for you to live the American dream. He sent His Son to the cross to die for you because He has a purpose for you to live in this world and to bring Him glory. And so that is who we are. Now the question we have to ask ourselves, is that what it looks like? And we can only individually ask ourselves that question, and that should be what you reflect on as you go forward. What are the ways that we can go forward and grow? And do it with encouragement and hope because He has already established that you are already set apart. You don't have to work for that. You're already set apart. You're already holy in His sight. The, the question is, are you living that way? And if you are set apart, I would think and I would hope that your heart's desire would be to look what look like what you are. And that is the struggle. And that's why we need each other. And that's how we will grow into being a greater and dynamic church is if we are becoming more and more and more who we are. And if we're like that in this community, then that community, this community will look at us and say, as Pastor Nick preached a few weeks ago, if we were to cease to exist, they would cry out and say, please, no, don't let that happen. Those people are different. Those people have something that I don't have. What is that? And so if we are becoming more and more what we already are, then, we will, then it will be said that way of us in this community. May God bless us to be that type of church. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I just thank you so much for the encouragement that you always bring us, Father, to know that as we live out the Christian life and the difficulties and tribulations that we face in this world, the opposition from unbelievers, but more importantly, Father, the struggles with our own sin. Lord, it is almost more than we can handle. But we know, God, that you have given us all that we need to live a life of godliness. You have given us grace and from that grace, Father, we have peace with you. And Father, I celebrate that this morning, and I thank you for that. And I pray that you are giving us the grace to be more and more like what we are. We love you, and we thank you in advance for what you are doing with us. May you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.